from 12,000 to 10,000 BCE. Anatolia, also known as Asia Minor, transitioning from the late Paleolithic to the Mesolithic period. During this time, the region was characterized by a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, with small groups of people living in temporary settlements. The climate was gradually warming after the last ice age, leading to the expansion of forests and the increased availability of resources such as plants and animals. As the environment became more hospitable, human population in Anatolia began to grow. People started to develop new technologies and tools to adapt to their surroundings. The inhabitants of this region relied on hunting, fishing, gathering wild plants for sustenance. They also began to develop more advanced stone tools, such as microliths, which were small, sharp-edged tools used for various purposes, including hunting and food processing. During this period, there is evidence of increased social interaction and trade between different groups of people in Anatolia. This exchange of ideas and resources likely played a significant role in the development of new technologies and the eventual rise of agriculture in the region. It is clear that between the time of 12,000 to 10,000 BCE, significant change and development in Anatolia, setting the stage for the emergence of more complex societies. Gobekli Tepe, an archaeological site located in southeastern Turkey near the city of San Lerfa, dates back to the pre-pottery Neolithic period around 10,000 BCE, making it one of the oldest known human-made religious structures on the planet. Gobekli Tepe consists of several circular and oval-shaped stone enclosures with the largest measuring about 30 meters in diameter. The site is notable for its T-shaped limestone pillars, some are which up to 5.5 meters tall and weigh up to 20 tons. Many of these pillars are decorated with intricate carvings of animals, such as foxes, snakes, scorpions, birds, and other abstract symbols. The purpose of Gebekli Tepe remains a subject of debate among archaeologists and philologists. Some believe it was a religious center or sanctuary, where others think it may have just been a social gathering place. The site predates the invention of pottery, metal tools, and advanced agriculture, which has led some researchers to propose that it may have played a role in the transition from hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a more settled agricultural society. One of the most intriguing aspects of Gebekli Tepe is the apparent lack of permanent habitation. There is little evidence of houses or domestic structures, suggesting that the site was not a permanent settlement, but rather a place visited periodically for religious ceremonial purposes similar to what we see at Stonehenge. The site was intentionally buried around 8000 BCE, possibly as a means of decommissioning the structure or as a form of ritual closure. The reasons for this remain unclear, but it has helped to preserve the site 
in a relatively good condition. Gebekli Tepe has significantly impacted our understanding of early human societies and the development of religion, art, and architecture. Its discovery has challenged traditional theories about the origins of civilization and has raised new questions about the role of religion and ritual in the lives of prehistoric people. Jericho, one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world, with evidence of settlements that go back to 9000 BCE. Its first inhabitants were likely a mix of hunter-gatherers, just like Gebekli Tepe, who settled in an area due to its fertile soil and abundant water sources. These early inhabitants would have lived as simple mud-brick houses and relied on agricultural hunting and gathering. Over time, the settlement grew and developed, eventually becoming the fortified city that we know today. However, a more advanced city or palace known as Nassos in Crete, which has evidence of people living there going back to 7000 BCE. This may be the first real city in the world. Now, Nassos would not have existed as the ancient Minoan palace that we know of today. However, it does have evidence of some sort of building structure located where the palace was built, which means that Nassos as a city can be traced back to 7000 BCE. The Minoan civilization, which was centered on the island of Crete, did not emerge until 2700 BCE. However, in 7000 BCE, the area was inhabited by Neolithic communities who practiced agriculture. And these are the people that Homer talks about that are called the Pelasgians. The Copper Age, also known as the Chalcolithic period, was a transitional phase between the Neolithic Stone Age and the Bronze Age. It is generally dated between 4,500 and 3,300 BCE. During this time, human societies began to use copper tools and weapons in addition to stone. The Copper Age was marked by significant advancements in technology, agriculture, and social organization. As people learned how to smelt and work with copper, they were able to create more efficient tools and weapons, which in turn allowed for the more productive farming and hunting. This led to an increase in food population, supporting larger populations than the growth of settlements which came with the growth of art and ideas, which led to religion. Trade networks expanded during the Copper Age as the communities sought to acquire copper and other valuable resources. The exchange of goods and ideas facilitated the spread of new technologies and cultural practices across different regions. Medicines were traded. Metallurgy also had a profound impact on social structures as a specialized craftsman emerged to produce copper tools and weapons. These skilled artisans often held a higher status within their communities, reflecting the growing importance of metalworking in Copper Age societies. Ritual practices continued to play a central role in the lives of Copper Age people. Megalithic structures such as Stonehenge in England and the 
Gantija temples in Malta are constructed during this period, demonstrating the sophisticated engineering skills and religious beliefs of these ancient societies. The emergence of complex burial practices, including the use of grave goods and elaborate tombs, also points to a growing concern with the afterlife and the veneration of ancestors. The Copper Age saw the rise of several important civilizations, including the Sumerians in Mesopotamia, as well as the Minoans of Crete, and the pre-dynastic Egyptians in the Nile Valley. These early societies developed complex political systems, monumental architecture, and sophisticated art and writing systems, laying the groundwork for later Bronze Age civilizations to follow. As trade networks expanded, the facilitation of goods and ideas cross paths from different regions, and religion and ritual practices continue to play central roles in the lives of people, culturally and politically. The influence of the Proto-Indo-European pantheon on Vedic and Greco-Roman mythology, as well as the early Sumerians and pre-dynastic Egyptians, can be traced back to this transformative period in human history. The Proto-Indo-European pantheon of gods is believed to have originated in the Pontic Caspian Black Sea Steppe region, a region that spans from modern-day Ukraine, Russia, and Kazakhstan all the way over to Europe. As the Proto-Indo-Europeans migrated and interacted with other cultures, their religious beliefs spread and evolved. The Vedic religion, which emerged in ancient India around 1500 BCE, shares many similarities with these Proto-Indo-Europeans. For example, the Vedic god Indra, the king of the gods, the god of thunder, is strikingly similar to the Proto-Indo-European god Perkwanos. Similarly, the Vedic god of fire, Agni, can be traced back to the Proto-Indo-European god, Anguanos. The influence of the Proto-Indo-European pantheon can also be seen in Greco-Roman mythology. The Greek god Zeus and the Roman god Jupiter both share characteristics with the sky god, Dias Petar. Additionally, the Greek god of the sea, Poseidon, and the Roman god Neptune have similarities with the Proto-Indo-European god of water, Hypnomneptos. The Sumerians, who inhabited modern-day Iraq, developed one of the earliest known systems of writing, the cuneiform script. This allowed them to record the religious beliefs, which centered around a pantheon of gods, including Anu, the god of the sky, and Enlil, the god of wind and storms, these gods would later influence the religious beliefs of the Akkadians, Babylonians, and Assyrians. The Pelasgians, however, were pre-Hellenic people who inhabited parts of Greece and the Aegean region before the arrival of Greeks. Little is known about their religion, as there are few surviving records or artifacts. However, it is believed that they practiced a form of animism or nature worship with a focus on fertility and agricultural deities. 
Some scholars suggest that the Pelasgians may have influenced the development of early Greek religion, in particular the worship of the earth goddess Gaia and other Chthonic deities. In pre-dynastic Egypt, before the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt around 3000 BCE, various local deities were worshipped. Some of these deities, such as the falcon god Horus and the cow goddess Hathor, would later be incorporated in the Egyptian pantheon during the dynastic period. The early Egyptians also believed in the concept of Mat, cosmic order that maintained balance and harmony in the universe. The Minoans, centered around the island of Crete, was another influential Bronze Age culture. These Minoans are best known for this palace that I mentioned earlier at Knossos, which featured elaborate frescoes depicting religious scenes. Minoan religion appears to have been centered around a great goddess who was associated with fertility, nature, and possibly the underworld. The Minoans also had a male god depicted as a bull or a bull-headed man who, connected with Bacchus, may have been the consort to the great goddess. Dionysus shows up in the earliest forms of writing, as well as hieroglyphs, predating writing itself. The Minoan religion was centered around the worship of these various deities, with a strong emphasis on the female goddess, the serpent goddess. The primary deity was this mother goddess, who was associated with animals and nature. Other important deities, the master of animals and sky father, were part of this pantheon, and the Minoans practiced rituals involving animal sacrifices, processions, orgies, and offerings. Their religious symbols included the double-headed axe, the bull, and the serpent. The Roman pantheon was influenced by these various cultures, Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome. Manu and Yemo are figures from Indo-European mythology. Just like Romulus and Remus are the legendary founders of Rome and Roman mythology, Manu and Yemo are believed to be the first man and first king, respectively, in the Indo-European mythological tradition. In some versions of the myth, Yemo is sacrificed by Manu to create the world, just as Romulus kills Remus in order to build Rome. In the Indian myths, Manu, the first man, and his twin brother, Yama, is sacrificed and is the first to die, who becomes the king of the underworld, while Manu becomes the father of mankind and survives a flood like Noah and Gilgamesh. god Mars, the Roman god of war and oaths, is connected to the Proto-Indo-European god Mawarts, the deity of war and storms. This figure is also related to the Greek Ares and the Hindu Marutas. Neptune, the Roman god of the sea, is linked to the Proto-Indo-European Neptos, the deity of water and underworld. This figure is also related to the Vedic god Napat and the Irish god Nakat. Minerva, the Roman goddess of wisdom and war, is associated with the Proto-Indo-European goddess Hesos, the deity of dawn. And this figure 
is also related to Athena and Eos and the Hindu goddess Ushas. Venus, also related to this goddess as well, is the goddess of love and beauty and fertility. Also, the dawn goddess, who is known in Latin as Lucifer, Lightbringer. Hawos is the figure in the Proto-Indo-European pantheon related to this. There is also Perquanos, the Lord of Oaks, which reminds one of Zeus of Dodona, one of the ancient wonders of the world, surrounded by oak trees. And like Perquanos, he is a sky god connected with thunder and lightning. Obvious connections to Indra as well as Zeus. Keranos, the name of Zeus's thunderbolt. The Hercina, spring nymph, associated with the river of the same name, identified with Demeter. The name could be a bowering, as it rather follows a Celtic sound law, which explains why Indra and Dias Pitar in Hindu mythology are two distinct gods, unlike how Zeus takes on the role of both and is synced with Jupiter. Both related to Dias or Dayfather, Jupiter, the king of the gods in the Roman pantheon, is associated with Dias Pitar, the sky father. This deity is also the precursor to Zeus, as I've mentioned, and the Hindu god Dias Pitta. This god, although a sky father, seems to be connected with an underworld king of Hades known as Dis Pater. Dis Pater otherwise known as Rex Infernus or Pluto, is a Roman god of the underworld. Dis was originally associated with fertile agricultural land and mineral wealth, and since those minerals came from underground, he was later equated with Chthonic deities Dionysos, Pluto, Hades, as well as Saturn, who becomes the king of the underworld and rules the golden age where everybody has wealth. Tacitus refers to the god Odin as Mercury, Thor as Hercules, and Tyr as Mars. He calls the Isis of the Swebi, who is known as Freya. I think it should be pointed out that Herodotus also relates that the Hyperboreans are descended from Hermes, connecting Odin once again to Mercury. But Julius Caesar himself, who spent many years of his life in Gaul, relates that they are descended from Dis. This makes sense because the ancient form of Bacchus, who is the frenzy god, and Odin is the god of the frenzy who possesses. Bacchus is also the god of the frenzy who possesses. Both Odin and Bacchus are connected to the all-father Dis, the king of the underworld. This connection between Hades and Bacchus goes back to the Greeks as well. Here we see two depictions of Bacchus and Hades, both looking identical. Black beards, ivy wreath crown, and holding a thrice's staff. Saturn's role as the devourer and underworld king can be traced to Egypt. Sobek, also known as Seb or Geb, is either depicted with the head of a snake or a crocodile as he devours the souls of the wicked. In Greco-Roman Egypt, Seb or Geb was equated with the Greek god Kronos because he held a quite similar position in the Greek pantheon as the father of the gods 
Zeus, Hades, Poseidon, as Seb did in Egyptian mythology. This equation is particularly well attested in Teptunus in the southern Phaeum. Seb and Kronos were here part of a local version of the cult of Sobek, Lord of the Four Corners, the crocodile god. The equation was shown on the one hand in local iconography of the gods in which Seb is depicted as a man with attributes of Kronos and Kronos with the attributes of Seb. On the other hand, the priests of the local main temple identify themselves in Egyptian texts as priests of Sakhnatubis Seb or Sakhnatubis Geb, but in Greek texts as priests of Sakhnatubis Kronos. Accordingly, Egyptian names formed with the name of the god Seb or Geb were just popular among local villagers as Greek names derived from Kronos, especially Kronian. In the case of the Egyptians, it was this destroyer, Seb, who takes on all the traits of the earth shaker, Poseidon, Hades, king of the underworld, and the sky father, Zeus. And he holds a trident like Poseidon, but also like Shiva. Seb, like Shiva, can be connected with the Proto-Indo-European Sawa through this god Sabatios, who also has a Proto-Indo-European root name, Siwa. Shiva, one of the principal deities in Hinduism, is indeed associated with time through his aspect of Kala. Kala, which means time in Sanskrit, is one of the many aspects of Shiva. In this form, Shiva is considered the lord of time, destruction, and change, just as Saturn has the same traits. He is often depicted as the destroyer of the universe, who brings about the end of time to make way for new creation. This cyclical nature of time in the universe is a key concept in Hindu cosmology. Kalis and Kali have similar Proto-Indo-European etymologies. The word for Kalis, as you can see here on this chart, to call, to cry, is also related to the word calendar or the calends of a month in the Roman calendar. But here we see Kel to turn in motion, pivot, pole star, connecting with time and the cycle nature of this heavens in the sky that turns in a clockwise nature. Kel and Kelly are related through this Proto-Indo-European word. So the goddess Kali, who's the consort of Shiva, just as Kalis is the father of Saturn in Roman mythology, and Kalis is depicted on the cuirass of Augustus of Prima Porta at the very top above the four horses of Helios's quadriga. He is mature bearded man who holds a cloak over his head so that it billows in the form of an arch, conventional sign of deity that recalls the vault of the firmament. He is balanced and paired with the personification of earth at the bottom of the cuirass. These two figures have also been identified as Saturn and Magda Mater to represent the new Saturnian golden age of Augustan ideology. 
on the altar of the Lares, now held by the Vatican. Calus in his chariot appears among with Mithras above the figure of Augustus. The name Calus occurs dedicatory inscriptions in the connection to the cult of Mithras. The Mithraic Calus is sometimes depicted allegorically as an eagle bending over the sphere of heaven marked with symbols of the planet or the zodiac. In the Mithraic context, he is associated with Cotus and can appear as Calus Aeternus, eternal sky. A form of a Hora Mazda is invoked in Latin as Calus Aeternus Jupiter. The walls of some of the Mithraea feature allegorical depictions of the cosmos with Oceanus and Calus. The Mithraeum of Dyberg represents the tripartite world of Calus, Oceanus, and Tellus, below Phaeton Heliodramus. Mitra Varuna is a deity or dyad of deities that played a significant role in the Proto-Indo-European religion as well as the Vedic religion. Composed of two distinct elements, Mitra and Varuna, this divine pair represented different aspects of sovereignty, with Mitra embodying reason, order, and benevolence, and Varuna symbolizing violence, darkness, and inspiration of the frenzy. The concept of Mitra as Brahman and Varuna as the king of Gandharva is a particular suggestive formula. The Gandharva normally live in a mysterious world of their own, beyond the darkness into which Indra smote the singular Gandharva for the greater good of the Brahman. In Varuna's legend, the Gandharva intervene at a tragic moment to restore his failed virility with a magic herb, just as the first Luperki put an end to the sterility of the woman Romulus had abducted. This Mitra Varuna dyad can be seen as an ancient form of the Apollonian Dionysian dualism that we see in Greek mythology. Sky and underworld, dark and light, righteousness and liberty. In an earlier model, Georges Dumézil proposed that Waranos, also the god in the reconstructed dialogue, is the nocturnal sky and benevolent counterpart of Dios, with possible cognates the Greek Aranos and Vedic Varuna from the Proto-Indo-European Waru, which means to encompass over. Waranos may have personified the firmament or dwelled in the night sky. In both Greek and Vedic poetry, Aranos and Varuna are portrayed as wide-looking, bounding or seizing their victims and having or being heavenly seat. This dyad can be seen in the Thracian religion, with Clement of Alexandria compared to Jesus being in the bosom of Yahweh, which he compared to Sabasius being the godhead of Bacchus and Zeus or Saturn. Sabasios, a god of the Thracians and Phrygians, is also known from Greek and Latin sources as Sabasios or Sabadios, his name related to the Macedonian word Sadoi or Satyrs. According to some scholars, he was a Thracian mountain god whose cult was carried by Phrygian emigrants from Thrace to Anatolia. Greek sources from the 5th century BCE onward mention Sabasios as a Thracian god. In Athens, his cult's initiation ceremonies took place by night, and adepts were purified 
by being rubbed by serpents. A sacramental drink was also involved. The identification of Sabatios with Dionysus, which occurs regularly in Hellenistic sources, is unquestionable. He might have had the features of the heavenly god, hence he was later identified with the Semitic god Baal, both of them receiving Greek epithet Hypsistos, or highest, or supreme. Sabazios' name, connected with the Proto-Indo-European Siwo, connected to Shiva, as well as Saturn, meaning his own, the idea of freedom which constantly shows up in the epithets of Dionysus. Franz Cumont has suggested a relationship with the Illyrian Sabai, or Sabayum, identifying beer extracted from cereals, such as we see in the Eleusinian Mysteries, Bacchus and Demeter. Sabatios connected with the Proto-Indo-European word for sap as a sap god, with his juices and fluids being drunk in the Mysteries. This translation corresponds well to the pattern of Dionysus, who has the divinity of humidity and such was connected to the vegetation and intoxication. Anatolia identified Sabatios with Sabaoth. Under the Roman rulers, Sabatios was worshipped in Thrace, where he was often known as Sabazios, or in Latin, Sabadios and where he received such epithets as benevolent, curious, lord, megistos, greatest, and hypsistos, most high, and so forth. Theos hypsistos, god most high. And he was constantly identified both with Zeus, the sun, and the moon. Sort of a dual underworld, sky father, earth, sun, god head. Sun and moon in one. The motifs of hands making the votive gesture are among the distinctive features of his cult, the right hand of God. According to several Christian writers, Clement, Arnobius, Maternus, the most impressive rite of initiation into the mysteries of Sabatios consisted of the adept's contact with the serpent that was first put over his breast and then pulled down to his genitals. No less enigmatic than Zelmaxis, Sabatios was worshipped as early as the 4th century BCE, both as the Chthonic and Heavenly God, as I mentioned, and traces back to this common root of Zababa. Scholars have often tried to solve this riddle, supposing that borrowing from the Jewish religion, but the Jewish influence was not relevant in Anatolia before the 3rd century BCE. One should rather consider the Chthonic features determine the character of the Thracian Sabatios, whereas the Phrygian Sabatios was probably connected with the Skyfather Zeus. This very Skyfather was often worshipped side by side with the Earth Mother, Kubaba, later known as Kaibali. The Sumerians in the 4th century BCE show evidence of knowledge of this very duo, Zababa. Sumerian god of war and the tulatary deity of the city of Kish before it became Babylon in ancient Mesopotamia. He is often depicted as a warrior holding a weapon, just like Sabatios was, such as a mace or a bow, and often associated with the protection of the city and its people. Zababa was often linked with this goddess 
Inanna, either related as brother and sister or husband and wife. The goddess Kubaba, mentioned in the legendary Sumerian king list, though due to her gender, her inclusion is considered unusual. While modern authors refer to her as the queen, the Sumerian title applied to her is Lugal, king, which had no feminine counterpart. A recension from Ur instead states that there was no king while Kubaba reigned. A span of a hundred years, she is the only ruler from the third dynasty of Kish listed. The list describes her as the innkeeper and credits her with strengthening the foundation of Kish and attributes a hundred years culminating in the temporary transfer of power from Kish to Akshak before it was regained by Putzer Suen. The latter ruler is said to be Kubaba's son, which makes her the grandfather of Ur Zababa, once again Zababa named after the god, a legendary king who reigned for 400 years and was the legendary opponent of Sargon of Akkad, the founder of the first Akkadian dynasty, the Sumerians. The Sargon legend is a Sumerian text purporting to be Sargon's biography. In this text, Ur Zababa, who is the grandson of legendary Kubaba queen, is mentioned who often who awakes after a dream. For unknown reasons, Ur Zababa appoints Sargon as his cupbearer. Soon after this, Ur Zababa invites Sargon to his chambers to discuss a dream of Sargon's involving the favor of the goddess Inanna. Also in the Sargon legend, Ur Zababa is described as being the brother of holy Inanna, just as the god Zababa is the brother of Kubaba, the goddess, and this goddess would end up replacing Kubaba as the main goddess of Babylon, just as Ninurta would replace Zababa as the tulatary deity of Babylon. Ninurta has the same traits as the god Saturn, just as Inanna has the same features as Venus. Could it be that Sargon's triumph over the Ur-Zababa shows a polemic against these ancient earlier traditions that we see in Proto-Indo-European? According to Gonzalo Rubio in the Journal of Cuneiform Studies, Zababa and Kubaba are not Semitic names and are borrowed, in fact, from Proto-Indo-Europeans, which is not common with Sumerian traditions. But we now know that Inanna and Ninurta would replace, in fact, Kubaba and Zababa as the tulatary deities of the city of Kish, which later became the city of Babylon. Inanna and Ninurta have parallels to Venus and Saturn in Roman mythology. And it could be how the king and queen, God of Israel, Yahweh and Asherah, became the head of the pantheon. The golden vines and satyrs in the temple of Yahweh, along with the observance of the Sabbath, reflects the Babylonian connections to Israelite tradition. In ancient Babylonia, the Akkadian word Sheb Shabum corresponds to the 15th day of the month 
as the day of quieting God's heart. These are the Akkadian words, Sebatom, meaning seventh day. The Babylonians observed the full moon as a day of rest and called it the Shabbat. Sabatios, the Phrygian descendant of this ancient deity, can be seen with the moon on his forehead. Possible early connections between Sabatios and his followers are indigenous mother goddess Phrygia Kybele may be reflected in Homer's brief reference to the youthful feats of Priam, who aided the Phrygians in their battles against the Amazons, an aspect of the compromised religious settlement. Similar to other mythic adjustments throughout the Aegean culture, can be read in the later Phrygian King Gordius' adoption with Kybele of Midas. One of the native religion's creatures was the lunar bull. Sabatio's relation with the goddess may be surmised in the way that his horse places a hoof on the head of the bull in a Roman marble relief at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Whether or not this can be shown as direct influences or just indirect passing down of ideas through the cultural milieu is unknown. But I do think it shows that some aspects of religion are universal. It can be traced back to the beginning of civilization. Even the word holy itself, Proto-Indo-European word, which is Hayeg, can be related to both the Greek Hagios and the Vedic Yagios. So, the word holy being common from one side of the continent to the other side of the continent shows that the religious rites are universally connected. What do you guys think about this? Leave it in the comments and you have just attained true gnosis.